your talk with Professor Patrick Griffin from Notre Dame. What exactly will you be covering? Well, Patrick and I have been asked to come and reflect on the American founding and its legacy up to the present day, which is a pretty huge topic to cover in an hour and a quarter, 250 years of how that founding moment has shaped American politics, American political culture. And Patrick is an expert in the 18th century. I'm a 19th century historian, really, but my interests range further forward than that. And I guess, you know, one of the things that uh, really interests me that I want to bring out uh, in the discussion this afternoon is this very, it's a very obvious fact, actually, but it's really worth emphasizing. Perhaps it's something that's more visible when you look at the United States as I do from outside, I don't know, perhaps it's more visible, but it's the sense that the American founding moment is the anchor, it's the ballast, it's the place that, it's the moment that everything still revolves around 250 years later, and that is very unusual. That is pretty weird, right, in global terms. That's an extremely unusual way of running your country. That, that political issues, public policy issues, whether it's about gun control, whether it's about abortion, whether it's about even issues about taxation and spend, become constitutional issues and therefore become issues that are in some sense about this founding moment, about what those silk stocking guys did in Philadelphia uh, back at the end of the 18th century. And that is both kind of brilliant and fascinating and inspiring, but needs to be kind of confronted head on. You know, that basic fact about American politics is something that I think in one way or another has, has interested me for the 20 years I've kind of been in this business and writing and visiting and spending time in the United States and, and trying to understand your country and its and its culture and the ramifications of it, um, you, you can see everywhere and every question you ask, every every subject you choose to look at in American history. And when it's grounded in that 200-some-year-old document from a group of wealthy, educated white men. And then questions of today go to the Supreme Court, which is not representative, roughly speaking, of the entire population. It makes it even more peculiar. It does. And so how can that be justified? So one way in which it has been justified is that, you know, we're, we're speaking, your question was kind of framed in a slightly pejorative way, and I was doing this too. A bunch of white guys, silk stocking white guys, they were, you know, many of them were slaveholders, all of them were extremely wealthy, by the, you know, they were the top one percenters, right? You know, why should the top one percenters in the 1780s get to have, even indirectly, even through the way in which their words have been interpreted, any influence. <laughs> I mean, it would be, I mean, if in British, you know, if in British history, you know, we think about the Britain as an old country, the United States is an old country in a deeper and more important sense because of this fixation on the 18th century, right? Now, um, so how has that been justified? It's been justified on the grounds often that those one percenters, those white guys, were doing something transcendent. That they were somehow, and of course there are many people in this country who believe that they were providentially inspired, that there was something about that founding moment, about the Declaration of Independence, but then also about the writing of the Constitution that transcends time and place 
and the subjectivity and the socioeconomic position of the people writing the document. Now, if you believe that, then there's kind of no problem <laughs> because this is like obeying the Ten Commandments. This is something that's divinely given to us. But of course, that's a leap of faith. I mean, it's literally a leap of faith. And if you have that faith, then everything else follows. And if you don't, as your question implies, yeah, there's an obvious problem there. So what is the remedy or, or the path forward for those who would like to see change? I, I think uh, I was watching a lecture you gave recently, or maybe it was one of your writings, where you quoted to Tocqueville, Americans like change, not revolution. I think that probably was to Tocqueville. I mean, to Tocqueville, who was this uh, French aristocratic liberal who visited the United States, spent a couple of years here in the mid-1830s and wrote, people listening to this, I'm sure will know, the book Democracy in America, immensely quotable, um, actually rather a kind of ragtag of a book in many ways, but immensely quotable. And he was very, very perceptive. And I think he did say something like, I'm mangling this quote, the Americans love change, but they dread revolutions. Well, of course, they dread revolution they dread further revolutions if you're a post revolution if you're a revolutionary society and I'm not being deliberately provocative in saying this but you know the the same is true in Cuba the same is true in the Soviet Union if you're a, if you're a society a polity that was created at one moment then your worst nightmare is any further revolution becomes a counter-revolution it becomes revanchism it becomes something to be dreaded and and so that and that of course is the flip side of the inspiring nature of the founding moment of the 18th century is that it has created what in many respects is a very conservative political culture. It's conserving something, you know, this is the great paradox, it's conserving something that in many ways is very liberal in, in an enlightenment sense, founded in ideas about individual rights, founded in assumptions about the universal applicability of human rights, and yet nevertheless conserving that against all comers becomes a deep preoccupation. And that's true today, and it has been true ever since. <laughs> so how is it that other democracies, other countries have, have moved on, and, and we haven't? Is there an answer to that? The thing about the United States is that it transforms all the time in spite of that. And so one of the questions is, how far can the United States change while it's literally its documents, its constitution, its its founding charter remains inviolable? And we, the United States, I'm going to call it we, but I mean, you in the United States, you know, have got into a very awkward position, it seems to me, with your constitution, whereby... Changing it seems unimaginable. I mean, you know, take take. I mean, one almost random example of the the electoral college, which has been, you know, much criticised, of course, because it has now done uh, what twice in the 21st century, what previously would have been in the 20th century unimaginable, which is to produce a president who was not the first choice by popular vote of the American people. Um, in the 1990s, that people would have said, if that happens, what people would have said, well, the Electoral College will have to go. People will never stand for that. Of course, they did stand for it in 2000, and they stood for it again in 2016. And if it happens again in the next presidential election, the same will happen again. And people will mount very fierce and firm defenses of why that's okay. And there is nothing that can be done. There is nothing that can be done. You know, I, there are various workarounds being suggested, interstate compacts, various. 
but there is nothing that can be done to change the constitution to abolish the electoral college. That is a problem for a country when you get to a state, and that's only taking one small example, there are many, many others we can multiply. That really is a problem. So the question then is how many workarounds can you find before the pressure builds up and the whole system collapses? And it does seem to me, you know, if I, in my more pessimistic moments, and I'm basically not a pessimistic person, <laughs> and one of the things that kind of has always drawn me to America is its sense of optimism, um, which kind of resonates with me. But if one were being pessimistic, you would look at the United States and say, this is a really dangerous experiment that's going on here, right? There has been a, across now uh, multiple decades, there has been a systemic transfer of wealth to the very, very top end of society. You have a political system that institutionalizes the representation of people, especially via the Senate and the Electoral College, um, people who have a, 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 a greater stake in the system than others. You're building up tension which you know may well at some point explode. And we, we have seen, I think, over the last 10 years in particular, I think a real shift, a gen, perhaps a generational shift, a shift in, in politics on the left in the United States, where there is more of a kind of rejection, it seems to me, from just listening to the discourse and talking to people, more of a rejection of, in quotes, the American idea, the American constitution, than there has been since the middle of the 19th century, I would say, you know, a more, more of a kind of radical critique of, of American institutions and what America stands for. I'm using lots of scare quotes here and my and people can't see me, but I'm using lots of scare quotes. More of a radical critique of that than there was even in the 1960s, which was a scary time for people at the time, because what they saw in the kind of long haired radicals were people rejecting the idea of America and burning the American flag in the context of the Vietnam War. But that was nothing, it seems to me, on what you have on the left now. And that is a natural and entirely predictable consequence of living in a polity in which the, the institutions themselves seem so unmalleable. That's a dangerous situation. That's not to say that it can't be managed in the end. It's not to say that it can't carry on like this potentially for a very long time. This is still, after all, overall, an incredibly wealthy and successful country by most measures. Uh, this is not a broken society. Some people have said it is, but I don't see that in the United States. But nevertheless, the dangers are clear to, to, to see. Your partner in this talk is Professor Patrick Griffin from Notre Dame. You admit you don't know exactly what the two of you will be speaking about. No, we don't know yet. <laughs> but what do you hope um, those who attend take away? What do, what do you want the, the, the lasting moment to be in their minds? I'd love for us to kind of open up a conversation. I'd just like to invite people who come along to the talk to see what's in front of them, to see the reality of the influence of this founding moment for good and for ill um, over 250 years in American history. And... You know, I'm here, you know, as an outsider. I spent, you know, most of my life, professional life studying this country, but I'm very conscious that I'm not a citizen of the United States. And in the end, I don't have a kind of dog in this fight, right? So I'm observing the United States, like almost like Tocqueville did. That's very grandiose of me to compare myself to Tocqueville. I'm not really, but you know, as a, in the pose of someone who's kind of watching you all as kind of specimens, <laughs> as a kind of deeply sympathetic observer, but nevertheless an observer. So maybe, you 
you know, I don't know, maybe I can say some things which people will think, oh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of obviously true, but I hadn't kind of quite thought about it in that way. If, if one or two people in the audience think that, I think that's probably a win. But I mean, I'd love to get a conversation going with the folks who come along, you know, whether in the auditorium or, you know, if, if we can get a chance to chat afterwards, because I'm so interested in what people think about these questions you know the questions you're asking you know what are the what are the consequences right now today of living in a country which has this compelling you know this gravitational pull of the 1770s and 1780s it's so weird it's so fascinating and it's also so potentially problematic